Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Nathan Rubin, joined by the usual suspects today, Editor-in-Chief Jordan Valerie. How you doing, Jordan? I'm good, thanks. Senior contributor Dylan Christine. Hey, Dylan, how's it going? Hi, Nathan. Good, thanks. I heard you ran a half marathon this morning. I did. I did. Thank you for that humble brag. How do you you feel? Tired. (laughs) Thank you. I bet. We're also joined by a very special guest. He's a comedian and writer here in New York City, and he runs a show called Loose Lips in Bushwick every other Thursday. Uh, Please welcome David Bradley Eisenberg. Thanks for coming on. We're really excited to have you. I'm happy to be here, man. Thank you for having me. Let's go ahead and dive right in. We've got packed agenda. Lots of shit's been going down. First things first, there's an election coming up on Tuesday, 11-7, November 7th. We're focused on the Virginia House races, the Virginia gubernatorial race, and the New Jersey gubernatorial race. So go read our, all about our candidates that we have posted on our website. Can I just plug that in Pennsylvania also we have um, some really important statewide judicial appointments up on the ballot on Tuesday. So if you're listening in PA, it's not about the governors or the um, House members, but it is about the judges. So go out and vote. Moral of the story is go vote. You're a citizen of a democracy. It's your duty. Next up, let's talk about this Donna Brazil story. This is driving me crazy. But long story short, she published a piece in Politico that basically was half true. And ultimately, it's going to promote her book. So curious what you guys think about it, because she's basically claiming that Hillary Clinton took over the DNC and it's a huge scandal. What do you guys think? I mean, Hillary Clinton's not said she's not running for anything else, so I'm not 100% sure why we continue to relitigate 2016. It's not really good for the party itself. Also, I just don't know why we weren't... If this really was such like a weight on Donna Brazil's conscience that she you know, cared this much about it, why weren't we talking about this nine months ago, ten months ago, however many months ago it was? Instead of like waxing on about it now when there's nothing we can do about it anyways. But also it's like three days before an election. Like why the timing? It's only going to reignite whatever conflict there was on the left. I also feel like everyone's getting right now into this weird space where they're thinking about like how history is going to look at them. And as opposed to actually doing the right thing, I feel like there's a lot of backtracking and trying to BS their way through, oh, well, this is why I didn't do this. This is why I didn't do that. Like, just do the right thing. And then we don't even have to worry about it. But I feel like it just like, so it takes the conversation off of Trump. Like even Trump was like tweeting something wildly kind of out of the realm of possibility about how... He thought he was going to run against Bernie Sanders, but, you know, because Hillary cheated, they had to run the race. I don't know. It was just like wild stuff. And suddenly, instead of talking about all of the indictments that happened and how John Kelly's racist and all the terrible things that are happening, we're relitigating 2016. But I, I guess like what it, what it comes down to for me is the DNC has new leadership. You know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is no longer the head of the DNC. Neither is down in Brazil. It's it's Tom Perez and it's Keith Ellison that are leading it forward. And the only place that we can go is forward in Trump's America. Like it doesn't, it's not good for our democracy for us to be infighting right ahead of very important elections. Well, it's not good for the Democrats. It's good for democracy, but it's not good for the Democrats. It's not good for the left. Well, I would argue that anything that's bad for the left is bad for democracy at this point in time. Whether there's a real like accountability on like the left is also an issue and whether people's have like a fair shot at a primary is important. And so if 
I would rather that this information get let out with bad timing. I mean, we should but know. It was never, but it was never hidden, right? Like, th- this was public info, like, during the election. No. Okay, so my understanding is that there was a 2015 agreement that both Bernie and Hillary signed. Then there was this 2016 agreement that only pertained to the general election. Bernie Sanders did not sign it, but it could have. And Bernie Sanders did not utilize the 2015 agreement. So I, I don't see this as like a huge scandal. It seems like Donna Brazil wildly misled people. Moreover, I think I'm going to lose my mind with the endless relitigation of the 2016 primary. I supported Bernie at that point, but Hillary won by almost 4 million votes in the primary. So even if the DNC favored her, she still won the popular vote. And I feel like that's a really weird, massive thing that we're missing out on. But moreover, I don't really care that much anymore, and I think there's so much important stuff that we need to litigate now. And if we're going to talk about the primary, I think the more useful thing is to talk about lessons we learned, which I feel like the Democratic Party has learned very little from it, and instead is going into this narrow Hillary-Bernie narrative over and over again. Yeah, like I think if Donna Brazile had outlined solutions in her piece, yes. like I wouldn't have had an, any problem with it. But the fact that she just like tore open a scab and is just like, have at it, guys, and buy my fucking book, like that just rubs me the wrong way. Well, yeah, because this could be a totally different conversation that I would argue would be good for democracy, right? If we were saying this is how this happened and these are the changes that Donna Brazile is saying that Tom Perez should put into place in order to make sure that this isn't repeated in 2020, right? That's a totally different conversation than I'm going to write an op-ed for Politico and hawk my book, but, you know, that's all, right? This isn't this isn't an actual productive conversation. It's just leading us back into the war of 2016. Yeah, agreed. It's pretty hilarious that it's Donna Brazile that's, like, she's been a part of the Clinton been part of Clinton campaigns and has been a part of the DNC for so long. It's pretty amazing that she would find it useful or smart to think that like, oh, let me come up with the juiciest, most like wild theory of Hillary stealing the election beyond any Bernie bros wildest dreams. Um, And, (laughs) you know, I mean, this is like, this is above and beyond, you know, March of 2016 when Bernie was saying that it was rigged. I mean, this is like, some really, really crazy stuff. And her, her agent was just like, yeah, let's make it as crazy as fucking possible. You know, <laughs> and like, you know, that Mission way. accomplished, I guess. Yeah, because now everybody on politics podcasts will be talking about it. And maybe one of us will buy the book. It, it's just interesting that she is such a, a, a part of the DNC for so long. And then she would choose to, I don't know, capitalize in some ways on. on... It's so swampy in a way. It's like, <laughs> it's like everything that's wrong with politics. It's like she saw the opening and the opportunity and was like, I'm going to make a name for myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm all about whistleblowing. I do think that this sort of information needs to be told. But the way it got told sounds like it was like misleading. All right. Enough of Donna Brazil. We have more important things to talk about. Mostly the fact that the president's former campaign manager for the presidential election in 2016 was given an indictment for 12 charges, including money laundering, failing to register as a foreign agent, and conspiracy against the United States. Um, That's Paul Manafort, along with his longtime business partner, Rick Gates. And then the bombshell was George Papadopoulos, a plea guilty. I'm just going to open it up and say that Donald Trump's reactions about a witch hunt kind of go out the window when one of these guys raises their hand and says, hey, you got me, I'm a witch. 
I did the thing that you said I did. Um, so what do we think about that? What are our reactions? I think we should be like clear, though, that George Papadopoulos is getting caught for lying to FBI agents, right? This, so it's not that he's being indicted on a specific Russia collusion charge. I just think that's clarity that needs to be thrown into the conversation. Yeah, but he lied about meeting with the Russians. Yeah, right? I get that. I just want to make sure that our listeners are clear. That's all on what the indictment charge actually is. That's all. Oh, it's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Washington Post actually just released a poll that said something like 59% of Americans approve of Robert Mueller's handling of the investigation so far. And 49% of Americans think that Donald Trump actually committed a crime. So those are not good numbers for the administration. There was an interesting piece in Vox, though, about this being a massive test for our democracy in the sense that the right-wing media is so powerful and is already going along with Donald Trump's narrative that this is a witch hunt. If it turns out that Donald Trump himself is guilty and that there is collusion between him personally and the Russians, like, will Republicans even believe it? Will, like, a significant portion of our population think that it's a lie? It's a really interesting question, like, can our democracy withstand the right-wing media? I'd like to think that Steve Ducey controls Donald Trump. <laughs> that actually all of Donald Trump's theories, he totally thought it was valid, but then Steve Ducey said on Fox and Friends that morning, I just like the idea that Steve Ducey is controlling Donald Trump. He's the real Steve Bannon. I mean, all that Donald Trump does is watch Fox and Friends, tweet, and golf. Like literally from <laughs> 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., he's tagging Fox and Friends on Twitter like 12 times. The, he's a real man of the like depressed TV watching people who haven't gone outside in years. Speaking of man of the people, um, I'm not sure if you guys saw this, but Donald Trump's Twitter account was shut down for 11 minutes. An outgoing Twitter employee on their last day deactivated Donald Trump's account. And I think we should give that guy... Uh, whatever the highest civilian award we can. <laughs> Congressional Medal of Honor. The Congressional Medal of Honor. Thank you, George. Like anybody who quits their job in any other way is so much worse than the way that that person quit their job. <laughs> if you like, if you're a McDonald's employee and like you flick off your boss and like throw hamburgers at the McDonald's guy and then like walk out, you know, with like a toy slide, that's not nearly as cool as turning off Donald Trump's Twitter account for 11 seconds. Yeah, speaking of McDonald's, I actually have nothing to say about McDonald's. I'm just going back to Russia. <laughs> Solid transition. <laughs> I'm a bit concerned that liberals think this is the fix to everything. But getting rid of Donald Trump doesn't fix everything. I think he's just a product of the Republican Party. And even getting Russia out of our electoral system doesn't fix our electoral system. We still have voter suppression. We still have gerrymandering. We still have the Electoral College. So I just caution against getting too excited for what this means in terms of fixing everything. I think it's really important. We hold everyone involved in this accountable, but it's not like the magic bullet. Also, we get stuck with Mike Pence. So I also think that's something <laughs> I'm not to think sure about. he's so clean. No, he's I mean, the he worst. Ran the he ran the transition. He made sure Michael Flynn was involved. I'm sure he and Jeff Sessions were in very close contact. And Jeff Sessions is not looking very good right now. I love the Democrats who are like, I miss George Bush. Like, no, no. <laughs> You're... I mean, don't you? <laughs> Dude, think about how many people George Bush killed versus Donald Trump. Like, 
Donald Trump is nasty and a terrible, terrible threat to our democracy, but George Bush lied to the public, had um, caused like a million Iraqis to die, tens of thousands of U.S. troops who lost lose trillions of dollars. I mean, there's... Well, I think you can't also make that... You're only making that comparison with 10, 11 months of Trump versus eight years of Bush. So one, I think that... And two, you're conflating, I think, foreign policy and domestic policy together. I just don't think that's like a fair comparison. I do agree with you that we need to be careful about problematic, nostalgic views of George W. Bush and that, you know, all that time looks better because at least it wasn't as chaotic as now. But I worry that we're also conflating a lot of things together in order to make this comparison that isn't practical. George W. Bush has been, a, has been much better in his post-presidential years than in his presidential years. During his presidency, he set up the environment that made Trump possible. Trump does not exist without George Bush. Does Trump exist without Obama, though? No, but that's not Obama's fault. I mean, I think you could place more blame on John McCain and Sarah Palin. I was thinking the same thing. Than anything else. But it's the whole lot of them. It's the whole party that's responsible. And they're all complicit in this. And I just don't want to forget, like, there's a narrative. You know, Donald Trump doesn't come out of nowhere. The previous Republicans are still responsible for what's happening now and for doing so little to stop it. That's true. That's true. I think it was uh, George H.W. Bush who ran an extremely racist ad during his Mm -hmm. presidential Willie Horton. The Willie Horton ad, that's right. And then even George W. Bush, I mean, he talked a lot about compassionate conservatism, but he had some dog whistles himself. Yeah, I mean, it's also like, uh, I mean, you could argue austerity leads to fascism because it if you're like if you're supporting policies that are starving your workers then they're going to want some red meat so you're going to throw social conservatism at them and it's just it's just perpetuating identity politics to the point where it's creating people like you know it's 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 creating a majoritarian kind of oppressive system so i just don't know if you can argue that 100% that when we look at austerity, it completely leads to dictatorship, right? I mean, austerity was an, an economic system that helped lead a lot of Soviet bloc countries out of their socialistic state, right? So I don't, I don't want America to go down an austerity path. But again, I just feel like we're creating these huge binaries where it's like, austerity, bad, dictatorship, Republicans, but all this stuff. And it's like, there's no nuanced anymore there's no understanding of how these things all fit together and then create bigger systems there's no room for nuance in our political debate thank you yeah i'm just kidding i'm, I'm totally kidding <laughs> no that no, you make no, 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 politics <laughs> officially anti-nuance <laughs> um, no yeah. okay speaking of like just awfulness in general and fascistic tendencies there was a terrorist attack in new york city and it was tragic and eight people died Um, ISIS claimed responsibility, and within minutes, Donald Trump had basically called for his Muslim ban to be enacted, and then later the next day, he called for the death penalty. Why is this problematic? Well, again, the Republicans piled on here. It's the Republicans aren't separate from Donald Trump. They they enable him. They are him. They played with the same extreme rhetoric. It's the establishment that's enabling everything to happen and encouraging it. It's like what's happening in Virginia too. You know, the GOP establishment candidate for governor is playing on Trump's like race politics. And here they're playing on his Islamophobia, which is also racialized. 
people should be outraged by Donald Trump, but we should be outraged that the Republican Party and the majority is doing nothing to hold him accountable, nothing to stop him. I think they rely on each other as like, I'm the good, like good cop, bad cop, deal with me or you have to deal with Trump or like they're just going to be quiet while Donald Trump is saying all the things that they are doing violently like like with policy well so people like bob corker have announced their retirement jeff flake like totally denounced donald trump on the floor of the senate don't you think that's like a positive development i mean it's it's moving us closer to where we need to Is go it? but i guess no. if, they, if they don't vote against that's him it. then well not just that retiring isn't a bold move in my eyes they're not really doing anything to reform the party they're just being like hey, I'm out, I'm going to say a few things against Trump, hopefully people admire me. But they vote with Donald Trump over 90% of the time. There's nothing impressive to me about them saying, Donald Trump's problematic, I'll see you later. They're going to get replaced by a Tea Party or a Trump person anyways. You're not doing anybody by bowing out of a primary that you know you're going to lose. I don't know, I mean, I feel like in Arizona, that seat that Jeff Flake is in could be susceptible to... A democratic takeover it definitely could be in play when at the end of the 2016 election there was talk of what hillary clinton they were talking about going to arizona and georgia i want to say were those the two yeah. should have gone to wisconsin yeah i mean yeah obviously but the fact that there was even talk of those two states being in play means that i think there's at least a chance that we could compete in arizona right like we're not going to compete in alabama but arizona might be no, I think there's a real shot, but I wish that Republicans would actually fight for whatever they might still believe in. I, I don't know what it is, <laughs> rather than just give up and say, yeah, we're going to support these extremists. Because when the extremists come to town, they just go along with it. Yeah, they fall in line. I feel like I need to say that George W. Bush was very careful about differentiating between terrorism and people who are um, follow like the religion of Islam, just because of our conversation earlier yeah but he said that and then he started two of our longest wars and killed a huge swath of arabs and muslims so i mean the nice the nice language has to be couched a little bit by the actual policies affecting people yeah i mean that's definitely true i just feel like when we're again jordan was saying we need to think about this in a larger art context right this is this is a fairly new phenomenon this inability to understand that people can be terrorists and could potentially be from the middle east right but they could also be white men from down the street and that your religion doesn't really play into the idea of terrorism totally. I think we should just get rid of the word terrorism altogether. It's such a, it's a pretty like vapid term. Like, I don't really know what it's political violence. Is that what it's called? Terrorism by definition is just mass political violence. Yeah. Violence to meet a political end, I think. All right. Chief of Staff John Kelly had some interesting remarks. I guess this is the week after he attacked a widow um, of a fallen soldier, didn't apologize made up some BS story about um, a congresswoman from Florida. And now he goes on to say that there were really fine people on both sides of the Civil War and that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Um, I'm not sure where John Kelly went to school, um, but the, I guess, common understanding of the Civil War is that it was about economics and it was about the expansion of slavery and how the South wanted to maintain their right to own other people um so is john kelly a racist yeah without a doubt and i think 
neo-confederates have really overtaken our system the new republic had an article that opened with winners don't always write the history books and it's really true here neo-confederates are the ones who got to write the history books vox also has a really good video that talks about what jordan was just talking about with the lost cause narrative and how that sort of comes in vogue at the later part of the 1800s and moves into the early 1900s and how we get the statues and how it's used as a way to um, belittle and intimidate African-Americans during Jim Crow and the birth of civil rights. So not that I want to plug people away from our website, but Fox does have a really good video about that. So basically what, what I want to talk about is like everyone when John Kelly came on board was like, he's a serious man. He's going to whip them into shape. He's going to stop Trump from tweeting. He's going to right the ship. And like literally none of that has happened. And I think if like the events of the last couple of weeks can inform us in any way, it's that like John Kelly aligns with Trump like pretty perfectly. And he's an awful human being. Yes, he wears a uniform. Yes, he's a general. We appreciate his service. But like damn, that guy has really awful views. There's no savior for Donald Trump. No one who works in his administration is ever going to be good, is ever not going to be racist, is ever not going to corrupt themselves. What I think is kind of amazing is that the people who we like cling for hope to are like, the CEO of ExxonMobil and a, <laughs> and, a, and a general in a civilian role. Like, it's kind of a sad state of affairs when we're like, really like glorifying these people as like our only savior of sanity and hope with like when like in any other world that we would be living in like all of us would just be kind of like raising eyebrows a little bit i, I mean some people would be I would, well i mean yeah rex tillerson i mean he looks like a movie villain he ran one of the worst polluters like in the world as a as a company he was buddy buddy with putin i think he got like some sort of award from vladimir putin it's to your point, it's like when we pin our hopes on them just because he called Trump a fucking moron, it's like, that's really nice to hear, but the man is still working for Trump. Also, how many times did we hear, Trump's going to pivot, Trump's going to change? Like, why do we believe in this narrative that one, anyone else can change Trump, or two, that anyone around Trump is not who we think they are? I mean, is that like just a comforting thought that we all have to make ourselves feel better? Because it's just, it's not true. I mean, I think like people in general, like, maybe this is like a human characteristic that it's it's hard to accept things that are like really damaging to either our like physical and mental health like what what the Trump administration is doing is like awful up and down the board like if you look at their tax reform their health care their criminal justice plan under Jeff Sessions. It's like every single thing is so bad that we need to hold on to some kind of hope. And whether that's like Mattis or McMaster or Tillerson, like we're just craving something. Uh, give us something that's going to be, give us hope, I think. Or, I don't know. or like Ivanka and Jared, like two, two products of nepotism who have never claimed that they are anything less like sniveling or corrupt. I mean, it's also, I think it's kind of like the same reason why people will say that Elvis isn't dead or Tupac's not dead. Because if you are a diehard Elvis Presley fan or a Tupac fan or a Biggie fan, you find out that they die, you're going to come up with something to help you believe that they're not dead because it's too much of a blow to your psyche. So the idea that Trump is going to get better or that someone's going to save Trump is the same kind of wishful thinking. So speaking of imaginary theories, I want to talk a little bit about how much the Trump administration lies. 
whether that's Sean Spicer from the podium or Sarah Sanders or Jeff Sessions, who like totally has perjured him as himself multiple times. What is it with these people's relationship to the truth? Like, are they just compulsive liars that they have to lie about everything? Or is it just like to cover their ass, even though it's going to come back to bite them? Like, I just don't is get it. Is it going to, I don't know how much it's going to come back to bite them because like again the right-wing media is so powerful republicans just don't believe the truth anyways so they can get away with lying i mean there was so much lying that you know leading up to the war in iraq all over fox news i mean it's it's been a i mean lies in the lying liars who tell them you know al franken my man yeah i don't know sarah sanders her press conferences are just such a shit show she just has like such mock outrage when someone's like Sarah, what did Donald Trump mean by give him the death penalty? And then she'll just go on and say, like, President Trump never tweeted such a thing. And it's, like, literally right in front of your face. The thing is, like, she has mock outrage, but do, like, everyday Republicans, is it mock? Or is it real? Like, they really believe a lot of what these people are saying. So, yeah, I don't genuinely believe that the administration thinks that what it's saying is real. But the problem is that knowingness doesn't translate to the people. The attacks on the media are working. They, there are some things that they, basic premises that they have convinced of themselves because they watched Fox News or whatever their entire life. And then they'll make up a lie because it justifies, you know, their end goal, which is staying in power and passing tax reform or, mm. you know, stuff like that. No, I de you definitely see where people are pushing narratives that meet their own agenda. And I think it's really dangerous. There's a study about how Fox News had enough power to literally sway elections by several points. Enough that John Kerry would have been elected president, that Obama would have won a landslide. It's terrifying that there's a media force, like a single source that is able to sway elections. Um, CNN is fake news, uh, and they're run by the leftists, so I completely disagree. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. Last but certainly not least, we should end on a positive note. Um, Houston won the World Series after Hurricane Harvey. So shout out to them for sticking through it. And uh, I actually read this really great piece about how the players, like you never think about this, the players are dealing with the hurricane fallout back home. Like their families are still like struggling to get debris and fix their homes and do all that stuff that comes after a massive storm like that. And these guys go on and win a championship. I think it's just incredible. Also, I heard on NPR the other day that apparently one of the Houston players had um, a very serious drug problem for a while and he was homeless and he was able to sort of get his life back together, come back to baseball, got picked up, I think, by the Braves. Could be fake news. I think they said the Braves. And then got traded to Houston and then is now a World Series champion. So plug to that too wow that's awesome that's awesome always good to to hear some stories in these dark and troubling times i had a um, show on uh thursdays uh at the grand bar in bushwick 8 p.m every other thursday um and i i was i was just talking about uh the astros winning and some guy uh in the audience said that it was rigged and that that if it, there's ever a natural disaster the next year one of the team's major teams wins and I was like, rigged? Like, like, and he was like, yeah, just, and he was a Bernie bro. He was like, yeah, just like how Hillary rigged the primary. And I was like, so are you saying Hillary rigged the 
2006 Super Bowl, so the New Orleans Saints would win. Like what? So, David, tell us about your show. What's uh, is it? Just like a stand-up show, or uh, what is it? Um, we do. It's like a. It's mostly all stand-up comedians, and then um, I also will have on guests where we'll sit around and you know chat about. Um, we'll talk about you know what what they do. We'll talk about current events. Um, I had on a a candidate who's endorsed by Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, in Crown Heights, in like a you know in Brooklyn, I had him on my show one time and trying to bring on more people. I really want to you know get some just some people to come on the show and just um, have more of like a public forum and then also bring on some comedians. All right. Well, on that note, thanks everyone for listening. Again, my name is Nathan Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Nathan H Rubin. We were joined by editor in chief Jordan Valerie. You can find her on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Dylan Christine can find on Instagram at Dylan Without Bob. And then David, you can find on Twitter at David Bradley EYE. And go check out his show, Loose Lips in Bushwick, every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode.